Well, hello, and welcome back to another scary, scary edition of Ghost Stories Told from the South. I am your host, Stephen LeBooth, and I got some skelly, skelly stuff for you today. <laughs> oh, man, got a good show for you today. Stayed up late last night doing some research and stuff, so I didn't record because it was late when I got done. But I got up to do it first thing this morning for you guys. I got some good, scary stuff, man. Just want to say thank you to everybody. My numbers are looking good. I'm still trying to get the YouTube thing figured out. So, like I said, I got a new editing tool with my Microsoft program. So, I'm trying to figure out how to do uh, my YouTube videos. It's not as easy as it was before, but I'm trying to get it worked out. Just want to say thank you guys for listening. You guys are awesome. Numbers are getting good, looking good. It's Spotify, I'm over 100 members now. It's awesome. Thank you very much. Um, just keep uh, liking my shows if you like them. Give me some four or five star uh, reviews, guys. And, uh, you know... Tell me if you like the show or not. But I'm glad you're here on this Saturday morning. Might as well get into it. I got a lot of stuff to cover today. And we have one more week left after this week. And then it's Halloween. Well, not technically. It's October. And me, when October 1st hits... Halloween hits. But yeah. We'll go ahead and start our stories. I got some good juicy ones today. Alright, our first story is the Haunted Crescent Hotel in Eureka Springs. I'm not for sure if I've covered these. Hopefully I haven't. I might have covered them in first, very, very, very first part of the show when uh, Lexi was here. But anyways, let's get on with it. The Haunted Crescent Hotel in Eureka Springs. This is going over the history of it. Purchased on the crest of the West Mountain above the Victorian village of Eureka Springs, uh, Arkansas, is the historic 1886 Crescent Hotel and Spa. The 78-room resort is not only known as an American's most historic and destination to go to, but also reowned for a bevy of spirits that are said to continue to walk up and down the uh, hallways and the grounds. Built by the... Uh, Eureka, built by the Eureka, Eureka Spring Improvement Company and the Fresco Railroad, the hotel was designed by Isaac L. Taylor, a well-known Missourian architect who had designed several famous buildings in St. Louis, 27, across, 27 acres at the north end of the west, several famous buildings in St. Louis. So this guy's basically what they're saying is it's architect designed some of the nice buildings you see in St. Louis. 
27 acres at the Northwest Mountain was chosen for its uh, magnificent location overlooking the valley. It was an important time in Eureka Springs history as the healing waters of the Ozarks had become a well-known nationwide had became well-known nationwide. People from near and far were swarming to the area in hopes of excuse me curing uh, curing the elements and other things of their pains. The Crescent Hotel and Spa developers plan to take an advantage take advantage of its of its many travelers by by the building's most luxurious resort in the country. That's kind of like how my hometown here in Mineral Wells, Texas. Look it up. It's kind of was based on the same principle. We got these wells here. We call it crazy, the crazy water. And supposedly it's got, it. you know, like them, it had healing powers and it was a big spa at one time. It was a bustling town. But now it's not. Powell Clayton, a former governor of Arkansas from 1868 to 1870, 1870 formed the uh, Eureka Springs Improvement Company to take advantage of its uh, prosperous period. Along, along with several invest, investors, the Fresco Railroad joined, uh, joined in on the plan knowing that the resort could only spur spur their business. Numerous stone mansions were brought in from the from Ireland to begin the construction in 1884. <coughs> Due to the destiny of the magnes, magnification limestone used to build the hotel, Special wagons were constructed to move the massive pieces of stone from the Curie site on the White River, designed in an electrical, an electric ray of architectural styles. The mansions built eighteen. The mansions built eighteen-inch walls, several towers, overhanging balconies, and a massive stone fireplace in the lobby. So basically, they had to make special wagons because they, you know, they had wagons back then, but they weren't equipped to haul some of these big uh, stones and limestone that they were taking out of this curie. And a curie is where they cut the stone out and bring it to the location to put it wherever or do whatever they want to with it. So, yeah, it was a big ordeal back in the day. Where was I at? As con construction continued for the next two years, more and more workers were hired as was hired as electrical lights, modern plumbing, and steam heating, and an elevator, and an, an extensive landscaping, and in luxurious decorations, and things like that were built into the hotel. Untimely, the hotel cost was $294,000 to build. 
an extremely high amount for the time. So at the time, that might not sound like a whole lot now. But at the time, that was a lot of money, guys. A lot of money back then. I'm still here. Sorry if I sound stuffy this morning. My allergies are kicking my eyes. Okay. Okay. On May 20th, 1886, the Grand House Crescent Hotel opened. Aimed much fanfare. The local Eureka Springs Times called it the America's most luxurious hotel at the time. Noblists from across the country attended its grand opening, including a Gallic ball complete with a full orchestra and banquet dinner for the 400 uh, for the 400 people offering large offering large airy rooms with exotic furniture settings a dining room that was uh, seated for more than 500 people and an outside in and uh, and outside that could include a swimming pool, tennis courts, and a cricket uh, place. A place to play cricket. I don't know how to play cricket. I never have. Among a beautiful landscape of flower gardens, winding boardwalks, and lug- luxury of the hotel was unmatched at the time. So at the time, this place was the bomb. I got to put on my freaking bifocals, man. All right, that's a lot better. I should have done this before, but I didn't. Immediately, immediately, the well-to-do of the nation began to flock to the luxurious, excuse me, resort hotel as delivered. Fitman met them at the fresco department before transporting them to the inn. <coughs> Once there, the guests could enjoy the healing waters of the spa and stables of a hundred slick-coated horses. Tea dance, in the, uh, tea dance in the afternoon and elaborate parties every evening with a full in-house orchestra. However, the property was not to uh, last. After the, after the turn of the century, people realized that the acclaimed healing waters did not have the curing powers that the hotel and the city were known for. Little by little, people stopped coming to the uh, beautiful resort. That's kind of what happened here to this town that I live in. You know, as, as you know, everyone, technology got better and all that. People like, oh, that water really don't work. And, you know, stuff started closing and this town kind of went to for a long time. Same thing with Eureka. From 1908 to 1924, the building was utilized as the uh, as the Crescent College and Conversatory for the young women, but continued as a summer resort. However, after operating for 16 years, the revenues from the uh, T 
pretentious and summer guests were not high enough to maintain the cost of the running of the large building. And the women's college closed after setting abandoned for the next six years. It briefly opened as a junior college from 1930 to 1934. And in 1937, Norman Baker arrived in the scene and bought the uh, aging hotel to open a cancer. Oh, okay. I remember this story about this guy. He was taking people's money and lying. He opened a uh, cancer hospital and health resort. Advertising miracle cures that required neither surgery nor painful experiences test. The Baker Hospital aligned that its patients would walk away from the resort cancer-free. However, what was known to many, dis, uh, many desperate patients who flocked to the hospital was that Norman Baker's miracle was nothing more than a scam that he had been portraying on an unsuspecting, unsuspecting patients for years. The man had no medical training and was convicted in Iowa in 1936 for participating in medicine without a license. Furthermore, the American Medical Association had condemned the many uh, things sold for several different uh, alignments, including cancer. While operating the hospital, Baker was being investigated by the federal authorities and in 1939 was finally arrested for mail fraud. One U.S. Postal Inspector estimated that Baker had made as much as $500,000 per year selling his miracle elixirs through the uh, mail while in Eureka Springs. So basically, this guy was going around saying, hey, man, I'm curing you. I can cure you of cancer. And back then, people would just give you their money and think, okay, fix me, fix me. And just this guy was taking people for their money. Uh, where was I at? Baker was convicted to serve a four-year sentence in Leavenworth. The, investiga the investigation revealed that over the years, Baker had defrauded cancer patients out of approximately woo, $4 million while no one died from Baker's cure. They, see, they didn't die from his cure, so he didn't kill them. They just died from the disease they had, the cancer. The investigation showed that his treatments most likely hesitated the death of those suffering from cancer when they did not receive effective forms of treatment. In 1944, Baker was released from Leavenworth and moved to Florida where he lived comfortably until he died in 1958. Well, yeah, from all the fucking money he took from people, of course he lived comfortably. During the war years of 1940 to 1946, the beautiful building was once again set empty. However, in 1946, the hotel was purchased by four Chicago businessmen, businessmen who began to restore the old hotel to its former uh, elegance. Through 
Though never at the level at its first grand days in the late 1800s, the hotel began to thrive. Unfortunately, tragedy struck again. In 1967, when a fire swept through the fourth floor of the south wing and much of, its, uh, much of it was destroyed. Over the next several years, the hotel passed through several hands as repairs and more registrations were made. Restorations. But it was never fully restored to its original grandeur. However, this all changed in 1997 when Marty and Ellis Rudkirk purchased the historic inn, and in May of 1997, the couple announced, in five years, we will pledge to have the Grand Lady of the Ozarks back to where she was a hundred years ago. But Ozark residents, having heard its promises too many times before, were, skept were skeptical. That year... The, reg the Roanoke's began to rebuild the spas and open a 6,500-foot new moon spa, including Vicky Showers, a, hydro a uh, hydrotherapy tub and sauna, a massage and therapy tables, tanning beds, and exercise equipment. The next major project was to... Restore the hotel skyline destroyed in the 1967 fire, costing well over millions of dollars and 3,500 square foot penthouse, original center observation tower, and the 200 pound, 20 foot tall crescent moon weather, weather van were restored. In the meantime, restoration of the guest rooms, lounges, electrical, plumbing, and landscaping were also ongoing. On September 6th of 2002, the Redkers' bold announcement began a, began a, began a reality. After $5 million in, res, in renovations, the Grand Hotel had fully restored to its original glory. I'm still here. I was getting a drink. <clears throat> okay, since that's the history of the place to catch you all up. Now, we are going to go into the hauntings. Today, the Crescent Hotel is one of the most visited hotels in, in the uh, South. With its long and extensive history, it's also known to be one of the most haunted places in the Ozarks. Staff and guests alike tell stories of several ghosts that are still said to inhabit the old hotel. The most often cited apparition is, is a red-headed Irish stonemason who the, staff was, who the staff has dubbed Michael. Allegedly, Michael was one of the original masons who worked on the hotel's build, building in 1885. However, while working on the roof, he lost his balance, fell into the second floor area, and was killed. This area, this area now houses room 218 of the hotel and is said to be the most, most haunted guest room. 
Michael is a mischievous ghost who likes to play tricks on the light, play tricks with the lights, the doors, and the television, and is often heard pounding loudly on the walls. Others have witnessed others have witnessed hands coming out of the bathroom mirror, and her and a herd of cries of what sounded like a man falling in the ceiling. That would be some creepy shit. Sitting there bushing your teeth at night or in the morning and some hands come out of the mirror. Or you hear some a guy's voice like he's fallen. That'd be creepy, man. Yet another guest had been guests have been excuse me, shaken in the middle of the night. And on one occasion a Patreon ran screaming from the room professing to have seen blood splatter all over his, all over its walls. See, that'd be creepy. Sounds interesting, though. <clears throat> From the days when the old hotel served as the Baker Cancer Hospital, the lingering spirit of a nurse dressed all in white is often seen pushing a gurney on the third floor. Only spotted after 11 p.m. when they used to move the uh, deceased out of the cancer's hospital. A lot of places used to do that back then. Would move dead bodies at night so that way people that are alive in the buildings wouldn't see them pushing the dead out the door. The ghostly spirit vanished when she reached, reaches the end of the hallway. Others have not seen the apparition and have reported this sound of squeals and rattles that sound like a gurney rolling down the hallway. During the 1930s, this area was used to the moniker, and even today still houses Dr. Baker's old autopsy table and walk-in freezer. Ooh, creepy. The uh, laundry area is also located in the third floor where a hotel maintenance man was once witnessed all of the washers and dryers unexpectedly turning on by themselves in the middle of the night. The greedy Dr. Baker apparition has also been seen in the old uh, recreation room in the basement at the foot of the first floor stairway. Dressed in a purple shirt and white linen suit, and looking somewhat confused, the apparition appears indecently to old photos of the infamous quack. That's another word for a doctor is a quack. For a time, the antiques. For a time, the antique switchboard continued to be utilized in the hotel. But when it actually received a phone calls from the other uh, from the received phone calls from otherwise empty basement, the old switchboard was disconnected. So a switchboard back then was how they used their phones. They'd be like, hey, take me to uh, give me the uh, Mrs. Baker's house. And it'd go. There'd be actually an operator that would connect you to that house or that room or whatever. So. That's what they mean. Uh, where was I at? Okay. Another uh, 
reminder of its old hospital days is a ghostly figure who calls himself who calls herself Theroda. Most often seen by housekeeping in room 419, she curiously introduces herself as a cancer patient before quickly vanishing. That's another thing you got to think about, too, of how many cancer, cancer patients died there thinking they was going to go there and, you know, live. In the lobby, a gentleman dressed in formal Victorian clothing, complete with top hat, has often been spotted at the bottom of the stairwell, sitting at the bar. Described as a disgruntled-looking man with a mustache and beard, many have claimed to intense him into a conversation. However, he sits quietly and never responds before he suddenly disappears. The hotel's crystal dining room is another place in the hotel that is said to contain frequent paranormal activities. Here, other Victorian-dressed apparitions have often been encountered. Many have seen groups of eight. Many have seen groups of 1890s dancers in full-dress attire, attire wheeling around the room. In the wee hours of the morning, our reports our reports tell of a 19th century gentleman who has been sitting at a table near the windows. When approached, he says, "I saw the most beautiful woman here last night, and I am waiting for her to return." God, even in death, he must have really loved that girl and didn't even know her. That would be creepy. I don't know what I'd do if a ghost talked to me or touched me or if I've even seen one. A former waitress reported that she spotted the vision of the Victorian bride and groom in the dining room's huge mirror. The groom allegedly made eye contact with her before the couple faded away. The Victorian spirit that lingers in the dining room are said to be very playful. On the occasion during the Christmas season, the Christmas tree and it and all its packages were found mysteriously moved to the other side of the room. And additionally, all the chairs had been moved had been moved to the circle or face the or to face the transportant tree. On another occasion, staff arrived in the morning to find that the dining room in perfect order except for all of the, excuse me, many is scattered about the room. So it's like every time they go in, it's something different. You know, the chairs will be not moved, but other stuff will be moved and scattered through the place. In the dining room, in the dining room's kitchen, the apparition of a small boy has been seen skipping around, sometimes sometimes pots and pans are said to come flying off the hooks of their own accord. On another often reported spirit is a young female who once attended the Crescent College and Conservatory for Young Women which was opened between 1908 and 1924. 
According to the tale, the young girl either jumped from or was pushed from a balcony to her death. Today, guests report hearing her screams as she falls. As she falls. Other apparitions have been cited in room 202 and room 424, as well as a ghostly waiter carrying a tray of butter in the hallways. Okay, butter. That would flip me out. I'd be like, wow, there's a ghost, but why are you carrying butter? Whether you visit the historic Crescent Hotel to get a peek of one of its many spirits or want to experience its long history and luxurious accommodations, you will certainly not be disappointed. Today, the full restored hotel creates an ambulance, an, oh, an ambulance that is transcended time will providing all the accommodations of modern day that travelers require. Surrounded by 15 acres of formal gardens and natural trails, <coughs> the hotel offers 72 guest rooms, <coughs> many with their own balcony, and 12 luxurious suits throughout the uh, building. The new Moon Spa features a full menu of treatments. And a saloon and willing in a wellness program. So, if you've been there, let me know, man. Sounds like that'd be a pretty, pretty, pretty cool place to to go visit there, man. It'd be pretty nice, pretty nice. All right, I'm back, everybody. I had to take a little restroom break. Okay, let's get on with our second story. What do you say? I hope y'all like that one. That one was pretty cool. All right, our next story is Body Cali or Booty California. Booty or Body California, however you want to fucking say it. All right, we're going to talk about this old place. Booty began as a little mining camp after the discovery of gold in 1859 by a group of prospectors, including W.C. Booty. Booty died in a blizzard the following November and never got to see the rise and fall of the town that was named after him. The gold discovery at Booty happened alongside the discovery of silver in nearby Aurora and Comstock Lod and Comstock Lode. Both of these cities became or both of these cities boomed while interested interest in booty remained rather lackluster. Luck at booty changed in eighteen seventy six when the Standard Company discovered a large deposit of gold ore which was trans which transformed booty almost overnight from an isolated mining camp to a true Wild West boomtown. Discoveries of precious ores in the booty mine during the eight, during 1878 attracted even more people, and by 1879, booty had a growing population of almost 10,000 people. 
It is even said that 1880 Booty was California's third largest uh, city. As a truly busting uh, mining town, Booty started to develop the empties, the amenities of a large city, including a Wells Fargo bank, four volunteer fire companies, a band, a railroad, unions. A daily newspaper, and of course, a jail. At the peak, 65 saloons existed along Main Street, Street, which was a mile long. Shootouts shootouts from the barroom brawls, holdups, and murders were commonplace here. Just like other mining uh, boom towns of the time. Booty had a clandestine and light district on the north end of the town. Uh, that means the, like the light district, uh, that's where all the uh, bad stuff happens. That's where you go to get uh, extra party favors. You go to uh, meet a girl of the evening, if you know what I mean. So that's what you did down there in the red district, or the light district. You was a uh, up to no good. Uh, there's even a story that tells of a Rose May, a working woman of the night, who came to the aid of a man of the town when a serious epic struck the town during its boom. Because of her age, she was known as the hooker with a heart of gold. She is credited with her life-saving care, and after she died, it said she was buried outside the cemetery fence just because she was a prostitute. They buried her outside. What a bunch of jerks. Regardless of her contributions to the town and its people, there remained the reminder the reminder of Booty Cemetery sits on the outskirts of town nearby its nearby the mouth of the town. It is the only building in the uh, booties that's built with red brick. Three, uh, three, bri- three bricks thick. Why is that? For insulation during the hot summer days to keep the remains of the uh, town's dead at a steady temperature. The first signs of decline happened in 1880 and became apparent towards the end of the same year. Promising, promising mining booms in Montana and Booty and Tombstone and throughout Arizona and Utah lured prospectors away from Booty. The miners who came to the town in the 1870s moved on, moved on its larger and more promising uh, booms and felt Booty was a family-centered community. And in 1882, the residents of the town built the still-standing Booty Methodist Church, which was withstood the uh, desert and still remains to this day. Despite the decline in population and mines were flourishing, and in 1881, Booty's ore production reached a whopping 31.0 million. A railway was even brought to the area in 1881. In 1910, Booty's population set at 698 people. 
most of which were families who had settled during the boom and decided not to move to the uh, another promising ore strikes. Booty's official decline began in, the ni- began in 1912 with the printing of the town's final newspaper. The Booty Miner and 1914 mining profits were just below $700,000 and mining claims were being sold off. The last time the last mine closed in 1942 which was due to the war production in board order of L228 which shut down all non-essential gold mines in the United States during World War II. Mining never resumed in Booty. <coughs> Excuse me. Booty first received the honor of the ghost town in 1915, but it still had 120 residents of till 19 for, until 1942. Now we're going to go over some of the hauntings in its old town. These days, Booty is preserved in a state of decay. A tattered, remind, tattered reminder of the uh, boom. A tattered reminder of the boom that held so much promise for people of the past. Only a small part of the town has survived the elements, but with 110 structures still standing strong, vi- visitors can walk through, can walk the once bustling streets. Even the even the uh, shops are still stocked with dust-covered goods. Shades of china dishes and bottles litter their sands. Like other mining camps, Booty earned a reputation of lawlessness. Killings were a daily event, and the town soon became known for its violence before its riches. This was said this was said of Booty at the time. Booty is a sea of sin lashed by the temptations of lust and passion. By World War II only six people were left in the town. Five of them died in a tragic death. A coin a constance perhaps or a booty attempting to shake the living from its uh, land. One of the male residents shot his wife and other and shot his wife, and after she died, three other men killed the husband. According to the reports, the spirit of the murdered man was said to visit the three men, shaking, shaking his fist and attempting to attack them. All three men, all three of them soon died from various various strange diseases. Could this could this old ghost town be cursed? Legend says yes. Supposedly, if visitors take souvenirs from the town, even a pebble, they will end up suffering from a misfortune and tragedy until the item is returned. Park rangers in the area even report people coming back to Booty to return stolen items and rid themselves of the Booty curse. 
there remains letters in the museum from people who have returned items to the park. The curse is supposedly uh, supposedly true by the spirits of the booty residents. Regarding the treasures in the in that regarding the treasures that remain. The J.C. Kane House at the corner of Park and Green Street is one of the one of Booty's haunt, most haunted locations, said to be frequented by the apparition of a maid. The spirit is spirit is said to love children, but despise the adults who accompany them. Adults in the home report feeling pushed or suffocated by this unseen entity. Excuse me. Others report the doors opening and closing all on their own. Excuse me. All on their own. The Medicati House is home to several reported friendly ghouls. One is thought to be Mr. Medokin herself. The smell of her Italian cooking warfing from the broken windows of the home. Others report hearing children's laughter and noises of large gatherings. At the Tecambu house, visitors report seeing a woman peering from the upstairs window. The Booty Cemetery, located in Booty located in the Booty Cemetery is the uh, angel Angel of Booty, which at three years old, who is said to have been killed accidentally when she was hit with a miner's pick. Ooh, fuck. That's a... Ugh, you, ah, man. You know what a pick is, right? Especially a miner's pick. It's basically a handle, and it's got two points coming out on either side so they could, you know, go mine the uh, rock, break the rock up so they could dig to get to the... Uh, Gold. Well, supposedly this little girl got accidentally hit by one. What the hell? Yeah, that's a hell of a way to die. Her grave is marked with a white marble ang- angle in an occasion the spirit the spirit of the little girl is said to come out and play with the living children who visit the grave. There are no permanent residents at the town these days except park employees. There are no tourist traps, re, uh, recreations, or restaurants. Booty is just as it was, an old mining camp, lonely and dusty, with a few spirits in the tow. Have you ever visited? Maybe you should. <laughs> That's kind of creepy and weird. Sorry about that. All right, guys. I told y'all, man, my stories are pretty long this week. You know, it's already kind of uh, late here. I got two more stories left. So what I might do... And it's already... uh, I don't like... I like to keep my stories about 45 to an hour... Uh, Maybe we'll do one more and I'll save my other story for another day. I'm not going to tell you what it is. 
All right, we're going to do one more for you. One more. All right, our next story is... Is this it? Yeah, the House of the Seven Gables in Salem, Massachusetts. The Turner Ignorso Mansion. The House of Seven Gables. They say that there is no house in Salem more haunted than the Turner Ignorso, better known to many as the House of Seven Gables. With its gothic-inspired cross, ga cross gables and dark as uh, coffee wood clamp boards, Turner and Ig Ignorsoul's infamous House of the Seven Gables looks like something out of the Hansel and Gretel spinoff. And we all know what happened to them. The breadcrumbs worked only for so long. But while Hansel and Gretel forced their own fate, the Turner Ignersoul has been given a variety of fates over the years. A variety of incidents to depend to de depending on the uh, century and on the owner. Once the home of a hat and shoe merchant, this historic property on Salem's Derby Street now belongs to the House of the Seven Gables Settlement. Excuse me. Along with several other centuries-old homes. Today it functions as a museum and event location, welcoming all through its doors. To learn about the Salem-born Arthur, Nathaniel Hawthorne, and life during the 19, or life during the 1840s. As for the ghost of the Turner in Corsol, it depends on it depends upon who you ask. Ask to whether or not they exist. Will you believe in the haunted house of the Seven Gables? <laughs> the history of the mansion. Before there was a... His... Anyways, before there was a... House or anything built, an 1851 novel. The house of the Seven Gables, there was John Turner a son of the independent servant from England. Despite his father's arrival to the, um, to the American colonists under a system that ensured at least 7 to 12 years of sovereign, sovereignty to his employee, John Turner quickly stabbed his mark in Salem, Massachusetts. He was an he was an invested hat and shoe merchant, and by 1680, 1668 had an, amassed a large enough for, uh, fortune <coughs> to construct a new house. <coughs> that was the much that was the much later nickname 
House of the House of the Seven Gables. The original construction was as simple in nature, with only two two rooms and two and a half stories tall. That don't make any sense. With only two rooms and two and a half stories tall. But Turner was not content with uh, with just being a hat merchant. No, there was much more money to be made. He worked in Salem's uh, maritime field, becoming a captain and accumulating more money than his neighbors would ever know what to do with. By the time of Turner's death in 1742, he was one of the most wealthiest men in the uh, area of Massachusetts. His uh, pro- probate, his probate inventory, I don't want to do that, spanned 14 pages when the when the average inventory for the period it was perhaps just one of two sheets or longer. In fact, John Turner's son inherited six homes six homes in the Bay Area, two hundred acres in a land of and a ha- or two hundred acres of land and a handful of ships docked in Salem's port. A former researcher for the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, Gary Carson, once wrote, Today it is the long survivor in New England, one one of the kind of high-quality house that introduced to North America. New new construction ideas and about domestic living in the last quarter of the 17th century. Merchants John Turner built himself a bigger and better dwelling than most of the neighbors owned. Indeed, John Turner did exactly that. Unfortunately, the third generation of Turners in Salem lost the full swoop of the uh, furniture uh, of the fortune and the prize family home was sold in 1782 to Samuel Ingersoll. So that's where the other name comes in. I wonder why this some bitch had two names. All right, this is the new family. When Sea Captain Samuel Ingersoll took on the uh, Turner House, it had grown expansively from its original two-room dwelling. John Turner and I had later added a kitchen to the south end wing of the house and a two-story porch. He also added that secret staircase known to many thanks to the Nathaniel Hawthorne's House of the Seven Gabriels. But Samuel Ingersoll extended the fancy extended to fancy up the place even more. He removed the framed gables and exchanged them for an intricate Victorian detail work. The Turner House became the Turner Ignorsoul Mansion. It was it was during the Ignorsoul era that Samuel's daughter uh, 
Susanna frequently frequently invited her cousin. All right, now we're going to the Hanstorn Curse. Arthur Rosemary Ellen Gulley of, Haunt, of Haunted Salem once wrote that Turner and Turner and the Ignorant Souls House of the Seven Gables is a ghostly reminder of shipping fortunes made and then lost. A bus blamed on the curse of the witch trials of eight of sixteen ninety two. Need to go look up the witch trials if you never have. That was pretty crazy. They was just these girls were going around accusing people of being witches and they were being hung for it. And not really been a fair trial or nothing. Excuse me. It was the Hawthorne's great granddaughter, John Hawthorne, who served as a judge during the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. As records show, he may have frequented symptoms for uh, accused witches. Back then, when you were accused witch, of course, you were hung, stoned to death, which means, I think, throwing stones at you, basically. Then another one was they'd crush you, uh, burnt you at the stake. So they had many ways they would kill you if you was a witch. No, if you were accused of being a witch. But they never regretted his involvement in their trials and executions. And he certainly never experienced any remorse during the trials themselves for sending accused to their deaths. It is said that he truly believed in the evil of witchcraft and thought it to be a real threat to the population of Salem. Following the witch trials of the late 1600s, he, he and his family lost most of their wealth, <clears throat> even, uh, even their high status within the social plummeted. No doubt influenced by the families of the accused, witches who sought injustice for their dead loved ones for their dead loved ones by the time nathaniel was born in 1804 they were so-called cursed the so-called curse of the hawthorne family had not yet been lifted during the days that he spent with his uh, cousin susanna in the 1840s she revealed more and more of their family's turbulent past she recalled him with stories of his family involvement with slavery and other evils. At first, Nathaniel confused. At first, Nathaniel convinced, confessed to an interest in the uh, Salem witch trials, but with age and mi minority came a sort of revolution of his ancestor John. To the point he allowed Susanna to convince him to alter his last name. See, I guess the curse was so bad on them they wanted to change their names. Until some generations before John, John, the Horth, Hather, ugh, the Hawthorne name had actually been spelt as Hathworth with a W. So, he went and changed all that, and he still uh, believed his family was cursed, and he uh, 
Yeah, so uh, basically watch out what you do when you're living. That story kind of sucked. I'm sorry, guys. I thought it'd be more juicy and talk about how the house is haunted, but it really didn't. It talked more about how the curse and shit was. I'm sorry about that last one, guys. That last story was a fucking stinker, and I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the uh, two stories I did talk about, especially booty. You know, don't go there and take something. Be haunted. And that's crazy, people still seeing stuff. But, you know, them mining towns like that, you know, they came up so fast and they also went down so fast. You know, and then you have the uh, hotel in Eureka Springs with so much... With a place like that, with so much death and stuff that happened, you know it's going to be cursed somehow, some way, my friend. <laughs> but I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Sorry if that last story sucked. But I got a big one ready for you next week. And uh, like I said, I'm just kind of going back to doing stuff around the world. I mean, around the United States. So, but we got one more week to Halloween seasons here, baby. Woo! I love Halloween. But you guys have a great, good, scary Saturday. Weather is getting great to start up some old bonfires, tell some scary stories around the old campfire, guys. But this is Stephen LaBooth for Ghost Stories Told from the South. Excuse me. And I will see you cool cats later. And uh, be scary, my friends. Bye.